Welcome, Connection. I'm glad you're here. Listen, I'd like you, if you've got your worship hand out, to turn to the page that has the date on it for August the 4th. Okay? At the top of that page, if you'll look, it says, if you can text, then text your question during the sermon to sermonquestion at yahoo.com. Let me explain that. I feel that sometimes, whenever I'm preaching, that you may have a question come to mind in the midst of the sermon. And by all means, we don't want you to raise your hand and say, hey, can I ask a question? Okay? But uh, what I would like to give you an opportunity, because I think what you're thinking is important. Okay? And I give you that opportunity to, to text a question in if you text. If you don't text, then you can write your question down on on the front page where the prayer request is and just put it in the box back there where we give our offerings. But if you can text, that's why at the end of the message I normally ask, do we have any questions? If there's time, then I'll answer one or two questions. And if I can't answer them all, then or if I can't answer any of them, then I'll respond to your text, okay? And so if you, if you get a question, a, a, a pertinent question during the sermon, then by all means I invite you to go ahead and text that question during the sermon because you'll forget it later, okay? And then also I want you to look, if you would, inside that fold-out where it says Connect Groups, okay? Connect Groups. And I want to invite you to one of our Connect Groups. We only do one worship during the week. That's today. That's in the morning. That's Sunday morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we continue filling the house, we'll probably go to two worships, okay? And uh, they'll be identical or they'll be near identical, Okay? And, uh, but then what we offer during the week are our studies, our home study groups. That's where you get a chance to be in a relationship with, with, could be five people, could be maybe 12 or 13, okay? And you get an opportunity to, to listen to a leader who's prepared to go through some scripture and then to also ask any questions. But the important thing is to come into relationship with other people. And then we don't do a lot of other stuff. We don't do a lot of committee meetings. We don't, we don't do a lot of, of, of large Bible studies because it's a known fact. Churches for 285 years has moved to that place and we've institutionalized religion and it all takes place here. We talk about getting out of the walls. It's important what we do here on Sunday morning. But we want you then to, to take opportunities where you live, where you work, where you play, to be involved in trying to get to know people and be on mission for Jesus in the way that He might use you to touch those lives. And uh, so we don't fill you with a lot of activities. Some people may not be used to that if you've been to church for a long time. So let me invite you to Connect Group. There's a paragraph underneath that. We have the, this year looked through the Old Testament. We went from Genesis through the book of Malachi. Okay, I know in my Connect Group, there was a person when we finished Malachi that says, you know, I've just seen the Bible, the Old Testament, like I've never seen it before. And that's what the leaders are seeking to bring alive about the Scriptures. And now we're going to begin this week, and you can see there's different times to meet, we're going to begin this week on the New Testament. If you've ever said, I wished I understood the Bible better, or I knew the Bible better, we're going to start the New Testament this week, and we will continue through December. It's going to be a five-month journey. You'll get a chance to get a view of the Scriptures as the first part of the New Testament introducing Jesus, then it introducing His church, and then it introduced His coming, His return. And so I would invite you to start to this week. Find one of those groups that you feel is appropriate and go. If you go to a group and it doesn't work for you, just switch to another group. Leaders aren't going to get upset. We just want you to be involved in learning the Scriptures. This lesson is very, or this time together is very important this week because we're going to talk about who Jesus is and Jesus is God. And a lot of people have trouble with that. And so you're going to see what the Scripture says because the only way we know about God the Father is from His revelation to us. And that's what this is. This is His revelation. Now this teaches also that He has other revelation. Okay? That's called, if you got into theological understanding, it would be called general revelation. Okay, I don't have time to explain that. Paul gets into that in the book of Romans. This is a special revelation. This is a revelation God gives to us. Everything God does coincides with what this book says. Somebody start telling you something that doesn't fit within the Bible, doesn't fit within the theme of the Bible, the scope of the Bible, and they're getting sort of extreme, be careful. 
Just be careful. But you need to learn the Bible. It is what brings the strength. And so I want to encourage you this week to, to come to one of those connect groups. Get involved and build some relationships and learn the New Testament. Okay? And then I want you to open your Bible. If you have your Bible here, I'd like you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. It's the New Testament also. Okay? The, the, it's the right side of your Bible. It's the back part of your Bible. You'll find the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, Acts, those books. You're getting close to the book of Luke. Or look at your table of contents. Let me say, if you do not have a Bible, we have New Testaments out here throughout the study of Luke, and we've been over a year looking at Luke. Okay? Uh, we started it uh, Easter 2012, or the Sunday after Easter in 2012. Because we're trying to break it down, we're trying to look at it not so fast that, that you can't comprehend. And I'm seeking to make it very applicable to life. Okay? Because we think, we think <coughs> excuse me, God has given us His Word, and it's, it's about heavenly stuff and stuff beyond us, but it's about us. And God's given us His Word because God cares about us. And so we invite you to take one of those New Testaments, if you don't have a Bible, and just find that book of Luke. And I will ask you from time to time to mark in that Bible to underline something that helps you understand the Scriptures a little bit better. But we're going to be in Luke 18, and if you've got a New Testament, it's page 68. But before we go on, I'd like to lead us in prayer. So would you bow with me? <coughs> Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You for what we are going to experience but God, there's no way. There's no way it's going to make any sense to us without Your Spirit's inspiration in our lives, in our minds. God, this is going to be counter to everything we have been taught, everything we have watched in our culture. Father, help us. Help us to see in Your Word truth and to understand that truth in relationship to our lives. God, we give You this time. We will focus on Your Word. We will listen to, to the encounter of human beings 2,000 years ago with Jesus. God, help us glean the truth that applies to our life today. Father, we realize it's impossible without Your Spirit's inspiration. God, we ask this because Jesus is our Lord. Amen. So if you look there at the 15th verse, we stopped at verse 14 last week. Let me say this, next week Matt's going to preach, and then the week after that I'm going to be talking again in Luke, and Jesus talks about the importance of what the prophets have taught, or God's Word. And so if some of you are very familiar with the Bible, some of you know very little bit about the Bible, and I will be talking about God's Word, and why we can believe it, okay? And Jesus says we can. And so, don't miss, I think that's the 18th of August. Don't miss that as we continue Luke, okay? So, let's look. The 15th verse, <clears throat> or look on the screen, yes. One day, it says, some parents brought their little children to Jesus. Now, let me just say, and, and, and I, I wanted to talk about that experience of parents and child, but I don't have time. I'm going to talk a little bit about that but I don't have a whole lot of time. Let me just say, these are small children. These are children probably 10 years and younger. Okay, They're, they're children who are very dependent on their parents. These aren't children who are getting to be 12 and 13. Because you've got to understand, at that time, 14-year-old girls would be either being married or getting ready to be married. Now that just blows my mind, okay, in our culture. But their culture, that's not unusual. Okay, so these are small children. These are children who need their parents. That's the important thing to understand in what Jesus is going to be sharing with us and then also what I share with you. It says, so those parents came, brought their little children to Jesus so He could touch and bless them. And their custom was to bring your child to a teacher who, who, had, who, who people recognized as being special and have Him to touch them or to bless them. Okay, we have when if mothers and fathers ask us, we do a baby dedication where, where we have a time when a baby's born, we have a time where, where we just have a, a prayer of blessing over them. That's what this is. So they bring him to Jesus. Look what it says. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering 
Him, Jesus. You see, in, in, in the disciples' minds, Jesus is a busy man. There are large crowds of people. You've heard me say this before. Matt says Jesus is a rock star. He has literally thousands of people following Him. These are people who lived in communities. If we looked at, at the geography back then of towns, communities of maybe 20, 50, 100 people. And so for a thousand or thousands to come around, for a multitude to come around, they would leave their homes and they would travel and they'd come to hear Jesus. So this is a time when the crowds are around Him and the disciples say, Jesus busy. He's got important things to do. He doesn't need these little rugrats bothering Him. Okay? And so they correct the parents. Now, don't make this mistake of what the disciples did. That Jesus is too busy for kids. Matter of fact, listen, the world has reversed that in our day. The world doesn't say Jesus is too busy for kids. The world tells you that your kids are too busy to get near Jesus. Do you hear me? The world has turned that around on us. Boy, don't get caught up in that. Verse 16 says, Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to Me. Don't stop them. Now don't miss what I am going to say. Jesus said, Don't stop them. This is taking place in the Roman Empire. This is taking place in a culture where children are devalued. We have trouble comprehending that, okay? Children aren't special like they are now. Children were not valued very greatly. Female children were not valued as much as male children. There is letters in history of Roman men who would, write, who would be gone and write to their wives knowing the baby was coming. And they would say, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, they tell them what to do to discard it. You see, children were discarded. If you didn't want any more children, they were aborted. If you didn't want any... Abortion was practiced back then. If you didn't want any children, they would be abandoned. If you didn't want any children, they would be abused. You just treated them like property until they could contribute to your family, until they could contribute to your need. Children were just another item of life. Okay? And as I said, women, females were not valued like males back then. Okay? If you wanted to discard your child, what you would do, we know this is true out of, uh, out of Roman history, you'd just take your child to a place where your child would be exposed to adults. Okay? Now, that's not foreign. What do we do? If somebody doesn't want their kid, we say, you will not be arrested if you take your child to a hospital or to a safe place, see? Because that's better than killing your child in our society, we say. Well, gee whiz, this is 2,000 years ago. And we know it's a historical, accurate information. They would t if they didn't want that child, they would take it to a place where adults knew children were exposed to them. And anybody then could take that child. And out of history, we know Children picked up like that normally were raised to either be slaves to whoever took them, raised them, fed them, or to be prostitutes, especially from the female experience. But male prostitution also is practiced. <clears throat> now that's the situation that Jesus is speaking in. That's why Jesus gets on His disciples and He says, hey, don't stop this. See? And we need to realize that before Jesus was the God-man, Jesus was the God-child. And see, we tend to forget that. We tend to forget the importance of children in relationship to God. And so we think Jesus is the God-man, but He was the God-child. And there's not a whole lot written in the Gospels about Jesus' childhood. But Luke, he talked about Jesus' childhood. Look on the screen. Luke 2. We talked about this, so I can't spend time. I put almost an entire sermon on this, this passage or this verse here. But this is what Luke said about Jesus. He said, Jesus grew in wisdom. Okay? Now, when I did that sermon, I shared that the Greek language meant He grew in intellectual knowledge about how to live life, how to live in this world. He grew in wisdom. He began to evaluate how to live life life in this world. Some of you parents say to your kids when they do something, you say, what in the world were you thinking? 
Why in the world would you do that? Where is your brain? You understand? That's how we say. Luke tells us Jesus grew in understanding some things about this world. And it says He grew in wisdom and He grew in stature. I added the words He grew in stature, but that's what it is. He grew in stature. That meant He, he grew in His body. And again, the Greek indicates Jesus understood some things about His body. And us parents, we really struggle with that because we raise children who enter into the experience where they don't understand their body. And things happen that aren't always advantageous to them. Jesus grew in His intellect about this world. He grew in understanding His body. He grew in favor with God. In other words, Jesus grew to understand what would bring pleasure to God. What would please God. Some people grow and they understand the world. Some people grow and understand their body, but they never understand what brings pleasure to God. And then it said, and He grew, okay, and in, He grew in favor with all the people, it says. In favor with God, and in favor, or it doesn't say favor, but with all the people, the word favor. In other words, when he grew up in relationship to God, understanding this difficult world and who he was, because his body grew, his life began to impact people. And he found favor with them. I'm going to tell you, living and loving like Jesus will always bring favor with others. Now, I can't guarantee you it's going to be favor with all people, because some people don't want to live and love like Jesus. Okay? And you get with the wrong people, and they will make fun of you, and they will... They will put you down, okay? They will put you down. But as a child, Jesus grew. See, Jesus understood what it was to be a child. And He didn't want His disciples stopping these children in this experience of culture where children are devalued. Okay? If you have your worship handout, look at the first blank there. Fill in that blank. The answer is on the screen. These parents were doing what all parents should be doing. They are doing what they can. They are doing what they can to get their children near Jesus. That's all they're doing. They're doing what they can to get their children near Jesus. When a child comes into the world, <clears throat> he comes into the world through a, an experience of a man, woman married. He comes or she comes into the world through the experience of not being married. When that child comes into the world, it is the responsibility of those people who conceive that child to bring that child into an experience where they will grow being near Jesus. And that's what these parents are doing. God entrusts parents to raise children to become near to Jesus. You can be sure this broken world will try to hurt your family so that you will take your children away from the opportunity to be close to Jesus. You can be sure this broken world will try to tell you you don't want your children around those hypocrites. And all of us are hypocrites at some time in our life. The thing is, we grow in our understanding of God that we repent of that hypocrisy when it occurs. You see, God has entrusted you and I to raise our children in our culture to be near Jesus. Listen to some of the words that God gives to parents about children. Look on the screen, because I don't have time to have you turn in the Scriptures. Look at Proverbs 19.26. God says this, Children who mistreat their father or chase away their mother are an embarrassment and a public disgrace. <clears throat> yeah. And we know that's true. Sash your dad. Tell your mom, you're talking to the hand. Don't want anything. Don't even want to hear. See, you're chasing her away. Stay out of my room. I don't want you to talk to me. And what God says is, listen, those children are an embarrassment and a public disgrace. And we're in a culture where we know that's true. And God wrote that over 3,000 years ago. Look at the next verse. Proverbs 13, or 19, 18. Discipline. Now, discipline is not punishment from God's perspective. Discipline is godly correction. Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. 
If you don't, you're helping them destroy themselves. In other words, God is saying you've got to give godly instruction to your children while they're young enough to learn. You wait till they get about 11, 12, 13, 14, and if you haven't started that, and folks, someday I'm going to say you wait till they're 8, 9, and 10 and you haven't started it. You're going to have trouble giving them godly instruction. The only instruction they're going to take is the instruction they think that brings something into their life that they want. He says, give godly instruction to your children while they are young enough to learn. He says, if you don't, you're helping them destroy themselves. And one of the things God tells us that parents are to teach children is that there, are authority in li- that there is authority in life. And you know who's supposed to be the first authority in a child's life? The parent. That's why the God makes the parent bigger than the child. You're taller. You're stronger. I know you may be weaker than other adults, but you're stronger. You've had more experiences. I know you were 16 when you had a child, but you've had 16 years of experience. You're able to rationalize. A child can't. And you are to be involved in the child's life. You wait till that child's 16, 17, and 18. You got heartbreak. And if you don't teach that child to honor your authority, what happens? Now listen to me. Listen to me. Every young woman, listen to me. Because it won't do any good for me to tell young men to listen to me. Now the young men are listening, right? Sort of reverse psychology. Listen, if you don't teach your child when they're little to honor your authority, they will go off to school when they're four or five and their teacher won't be able to get them to sit down. And the teacher's always trying to corral them while the other child who has listened to honor authority and authority says, let's sit down and let's read a book or let's draw a picture and... All of a sudden, after about three or four months, your child's behind. And then after six months, those children can read or can follow instructions much better than your child. And you're saying, that teacher's no good. That teacher has a problem with my kid. See, this is what he's trying to say. And listen, now it moves on. So your child then gets a job. And where some other worker learns to honor the supervisor, your child says, but I want to do it my way. And your child says, hey man, i got a call. And they're working. I want want to see what's going on here. And the other child hears the supervisor says, you know, phones are to be put away while you're getting paid by us. And all of a sudden, listen, your child isn't retained. And that other child keeps their job or gets a little bit better job. You see, if you don't teach your child godly correction, you're helping them to destroy themselves. Because their life is going to just fall in. It's going to cave in. When they get to be 18, 19, and 20, they're full of health and they can go out and do all kinds of things. But they're going to hit 45 and 50 and they're not going to have the health. And they're going to say, why am I falling behind? Why other people are moving ahead? Why is my life imploding while other people's lives are reaching out and experiencing the world. Now I know there's an exception to some kid whose parents didn't give him any any kind of discipline, godly advice, and he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. But you know what? It's now becoming more an exception than it used to be. Look at the next verse. See, because children are so important. Proverbs 13, 24. Those who spare the rod of discipline. Now understand, that's godly correction. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. In other words, children are responsible for the well-being of their child. You let your child get away with it because you are too lazy to keep paying attention to them. I don't know how many times in my children's were younger, I would say to adults, excuse me, and I'd go, and I'd get down on one knee, and I'd talk to my child, and I'd explain to him. I don't care who's around, I'd explain to him. And then I'd go back, and if my kid did it again, I'd go back, and I'd explain it to him. And then I'd tell him there were repercussions to that. And then I'd go back, and if they did it again, repercussions, the A-bomb drop. Boom! Because I love my kids. I didn't love you more than I love my kids. I love my kids. And God says, if you don't give them that godly correction, you hate them and none of us would want to believe we hate our kids. Okay? Now, let me say something about godly correction. Okay? 
The Bible talks about, because we hear the rod, spare the rod. Okay? So we hear about the rod. Why don't you think of a shepherd with his sheep? Okay? He's got a hundred sheep. And he's got this one sheep over here who's walking, the, you know, they're, they're out, in, and this sheep's walking right near the edge of the cliff. Okay? And the shepherd sees that. And he says to that sheep, Get away from there! Don't you realize that's dangerous? That sheep is like your child. And the shepherd, see the shepherd doesn't do that. Here's what the shepherd does. The shepherd takes that, that, that staff, that shepherd's rod. It's got that crook in it. And he puts it around because he's got to be careful. Startled sheep, he's allowed to fall over. And then he's got 99, see? And so he reaches over and he gets it around the neck of that little sheep and he pulls. That's discipline. Now I want to ask you, you think that sheep's going to go, thanks a lot, keep pulling, Pop! You catching the tension? And that's what happens when you love your child enough to bring godly correction there. You're saying, but why don't they just agree? Because they're as stubborn as those sheep. That's why we call... No, I guess it's not sheep. It's goats, kids, right? That's what the correction is. And Jesus knows children are important. And I bring these verses in here because He's trying to bring that across. Look, look what was said probably 4,000 years or 3,500 years ago. Look at the next verse. Oops, nope, we're still in Proverbs. This one, your children, and they will give you peace of mind and will make your heart glad. We know that's true, right? Yeah, a child who grows up learning how to respond with correct behavior, they just give you peace of mind and make your heart glad. Look at the next one. This is about 3,500 years old. Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this, okay? Deuteronomy 6, 6-7. I'm giving it to you out of the contemporary, contemporary English version. It's a lot easier to understand. Look what he says. In verse 6, he says, Memorize his laws. He's telling parents to this. Memorize his laws, the Word of God, and tell them to your children over and over again. See, if you don't memorize them, you misquote them. Okay? You don't tell them exactly like God said. Tell them over and over again. Now that's quality time. Memorize God's Word. Tell your child over, 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 over again. That's quality time with your children. Now look, he goes on. He says, talk about them all the time, whether you're at home or walking along the road or going to bed at night or getting up in the morning. Now that's quantity time. See, he's saying as much time as you can get. Have quality time. Talk about God's Word. Have quality time, whether it's in the morning, whether it's in the afternoon, whether it's at night, when it's going to bed, when you're walking along on the road. Talk about it. Now he says, write down copies and tie them to your wrists and forehead to help you obey them. In other words, your children ought to know God's words in your life. That's all that means. They would literally write things and wear bands around the head and things. But the idea was that your child grew up saying, you know, I'm going to tell you one thing I know about Dad. He not only knew how to fix cars or do, do whatever he did, God's Word was very important to him. Man, Dad would, Dad would say the reason he did something because God says. Dad, Mom would say the reason she, she, she did this is because God says. See, that's all he's trying to get. Verse 9, write these laws on the door frames of your home and on your town gates. In other words, the community your child grows up with, it ought to be God's Word that is the foundation. Now folks, our community isn't doing that anymore. Okay? And the longer we keep going, America's not doing that anymore. And I don't want it. That's a different sermon. I'm just telling you, nobody can stop you in your home and in your life. And your child is important. God knows that. Jesus knew that. That's why he said, stop, don't keep those kids away from me. Even as busy as he was. Look at the next blank in your message map. Fill that out. My question to you is, are you, how are you doing in keeping your kids near to Jesus and His Word? How are you doing? Now look what Jesus says there in verse 16. He goes on. And this is why I told you these are small children dependent upon their parents. Okay, For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these small children. Okay, Not grown children, these small children. Not children who are going to get married at 13 and 14 and 15. These small children. 
The kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these small children. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never, will never enter it. Now, what does he mean by a small child? Listen, a small child is trusting. He is. You know, I, 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 my, my, my grandchildren, I tell them stories, and they say, really? When they were little, they say, really? And I'd say, well, it didn't really happen that way. Okay? But see, small children are trusting. They take you at your word. Small children tend to follow. That's why we watch them, because they'll tend to follow the wrong person. Small children tend to follow. See, they'll go where you go. They receive guidance. Now, it used to be this went probably up to 8, 9, and 10. Now they're getting to be 5, and 6, and 7, and we have taught them so much the fear of this world that they don't trust. They don't trust pastors. They don't trust mom. They don't trust dad. They don't trust their teacher. And they're not willing to follow. And you've got to say, come on. I said, come on, come on, come on. But see, in Jesus' days, small children tend to trust. They took you at your word. Small children tend to follow. They receive guidance. And small children depended upon, listen, their parents for protection and provision. Now we're raising kids that says, what do I need with you? And they're not very old. See, Jesus says, listen, I want you to understand, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these small children who are trusting. The kingdom of God belongs to those who, listen, will follow Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to those who will trust God for protection and provision. Because what we end up doing, we grow up to become adults, and we don't. Listen, we say, I trust God, but we don't follow Jesus. Our life is our map, not His. And we say, I'm sorry, I can't trust God for protection and provision. i got to get out and work for it. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you're not like a small child. You know, that, that's rather profound. Somebody says, I don't like him talking like that. That's how he talks. Now folks, remember, throughout his ministry... People would come close to Jesus because they wanted to be near Him, they wanted to hear Him, and they realized they could get something from Jesus they couldn't get anywhere else. And Luke's going to tell us about a man who comes to Jesus to be near Him and to hear Him because there's something He wants that He can't get. So look at the next verse. Look at verse 18. Once a religious leader, okay, this is a person who knows something about God. A religious leader. Now the problem is, we read English, if we read Greek, the Greek words imply more than he just knows something about God. He's a religious leader. It implies that he's a ruler. Okay. Matter of fact, if you're reading out of maybe the New International Version, or you read out of King James, he's called a rich young ruler. It leaves out, listen, it leaves out that he knows something about God. You're going to see when he talks, he does. The Greek is indicating that a man comes to Jesus who knows something about God, and he, the people he's around has made him some kind of ruler. Some kind of ruler. And now being a leader, a ruler... A religious leader, being a ruler, means also he probably, from his actions, gains income. And you're going to see, that's going to be an area Jesus is going to talk about. He makes money. And that makes sense. person who has the qualities to be a leader, knows a lot about God, person who, who people recognize and they make a ruler, is probably a person who can earn some Income. That's this kind of guy. See, this is just not a derelict. This is a man who, who, who is dependable. This is a man who has achieved some things. This is a man who can set goals and he can reach his goals. This is a man who in his day would have been a successful person. This is a fella. This is the kind of person we all would like to be. I mean, come on. We all would like to be like this man. We'd like to have power or powerless. Which would you like? Hey, I like power. This man's got power. He's a leader. This man, this man we're going to see, 
He's got wealth. What would you like, wealth or poor? I still would like wealth. Okay? See, that's what kind of guy this is. This is a guy who is successful. What would you like, success or failure? I'd like success. Now, why do I say that? Because I want you to understand, this man is the man we all would like to be. And it's this kind of man who comes to Jesus. This is not a failure. This is not a man down on his luck. This is not a man who needs other people. This is a man who is successful. He has power. He has wealth. And he has success in his life. And he comes to Jesus. Now look what verse 18 tells us. He asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, his question is this. How do I obtain a relationship with God? That's what eternal life is. That's his question. He's, he's a successful, powerful person. He's a wealthy person. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do I obtain a relationship with God? And you know what? You're here today for that purpose. I read the Bible for that purpose. I study it for that purpose. How do I keep that relationship with God? See, that's what we ask. We ask it. How do I obtain a relationship with God? Now, folks, his question reveals something about himself and how he sees himself. His question is, good teacher, what should I do to have a relationship with God. In other words, let me ask you, Jesus, what is it that I need to do? What is it that I, you catching? I, I can attempt that will be rewarded by God so I have a relationship with Him. And that's because He's a successful man. And successful people end up saying, you know my success is because I work hard at it. I do it. I give myself. And so he comes to Jesus. He doesn't come in humility. He comes with arrogance. He comes saying, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to understand, if you come to the study in the New Testament, in your connect group, you and I can do nothing to get eternal life. It's all what Jesus did. But you see, you and I like to say, I'm a pretty good guy because of what I do. I read the Bible. I'm a pretty good guy because what I do. I memorize Scripture. I'm a pretty good guy because I make church part of my weekly activity. I'm a pretty good guy because I don't do anything bad. You see, we want to say, my relationship with God is based upon what I do. And I'm telling you, that's arrogance. Total arrogance. Remember last week's self-righteousness? That's what that is. And this guy is that way. He wants to know what he can do to make possible relationship with God. And Jesus is going to tell him, you can't do anything to make that possible. It's God that makes it possible. And that's what you and I have to understand. That's what we must understand when we raise children. That they understand it's not our authority that is the ultimate authority. It's God. If they can't learn your authority, they're going to have trouble learning the Heavenly Father's authority. Now he goes on in 19. Jesus asked a question. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now this man doesn't say that. That's Jesus' commentary. Jesus saying, you came to me and you said, hey, good teacher... And it makes sense. Go ask somebody who has some knowledge if you've got a problem in your life. This man does not feel he has a relationship with God. So he comes to a man who talks about God all the time. Talks about the power of God. Talks about God living in him. And he says, how do I? What is it I need to do so that I can be rewarded with a relationship with God? And Jesus doesn't answer me. And he says, let me ask you this. Why do you call me good? And then Jesus teaches the truth. Jesus says, Nobody's good except God. Only God is truly good. See, no human being is good. You're going to hurt me. My wife's going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt her. Because we're not good. We're broken. We're sinful. We tend to ourselves. And so that brings confrontation. And it's not until we rebuke. That's a couple sermons back. Until we're rebuked by someone who loves us. And that we say, I'm sorry, and they forgive us. That we get back on track for a while. 
See, and we keep saying, I wish I wouldn't have to get to that place and I'd never have problems. You're always going to have it in this world. You see, the only good person is God. And folks, Jesus is telling this man something. If you call me good, then what you're saying is I'm God. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is God. He is the only good person. He is God. That's what He's declaring here. Jesus lived a good life. He helped many people. He, he was a good teacher. But the thing that people missed back then and even today is Jesus is God. And what makes Him good is not that He's a superhuman being who disciplined His life never to make a mistake, but that He's God. And God is completely good. Now, Satan wants to tell you real quick now, he wants to throw something in your life and say, if God was good, why did he let this happen? And that was like four sermons ago where we take the attitude we know better than God. You see how these build on each other? Jesus is telling him, I'm God. That's why he's implying about himself. If I'm good, I'm God. And so, it is God that's going to confront this man. That's what it is. This man wants to know how he can obtain a relationship with God. God confronts him through the second person of the Godhead. That's Jesus Christ. God the Son. And look what he says. Look at verse 20. But to answer your question. Okay, so, so Jesus sort of tried to correct him. Now he's going to get back to his question. He says, to answer your question. Okay, or is he going to respond to him? He says, you know the commandments. See, this is a religious leader. This is a ruler. This is a man who's successful. This man memorizes. This man knows. He says, you know the commandments. Look, he says, you know your ability to do what God says. That's what Jesus is telling him. Okay? And the man would be going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says, Jesus says, you must not commit adultery. That's the seventh command. Jesus says, you must not murder. That's the sixth command. Jesus says, you must not steal. That's the eighth commandment. Jesus says, you must not testify falsely or bear false witness or lie. That's the ninth command. Jesus says, honor your father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. Look what the man replied in verse 21. The man replied, <laughs> I do it all, man. I'm a great achiever. I carefully, I carefully, I'm telling you, I am very careful not to murder somebody. I am very careful not to lie. I am very careful not to commit adultery. See, I carefully obey all these commandments and I want you to know, Jesus, I've been doing it a long time. You hear the arrogance? See, this man is saying, I don't murder anybody. But I want to ask you, does he hate someone? Because Jesus said, you have heard, you are not to commit murder. But I tell you, you're not to be hating people. Or you've committed murder. This man says, I've never committed adultery, but I wonder, has he lusted after someone? You see, Jesus said, you heard you shouldn't commit murder. I'm telling you, if you have lusted after someone, or committed adultery, Jesus said, I'm telling you, if you lusted after someone, you've committed adultery. See, this man's arrogance is, look, look, my life is such... My life is such that I'm not a real bad person. I don't have compulsive behaviors. I don't need that support group stuff. I'm a good guy. Nobody's going to throw me in jail for murdering. Nobody's going to say I commit adultery. Nobody's going to say I lie. See, this man, this man has no outstanding behavior misconduct. But this man has something that is missing. And what's missing is you can't get a hold of God. And you know, some of you have grown up in church. Some of you have been involved in this kind of experience for years. And you say, I don't have any real bad behavior, but I just can't get a hold of God. I don't, I don't break the commandments, but I can't get a hold of God. Look at 22. Look what it says. When Jesus heard His answer, He said, okay, there is still one thing you haven't done. See, God is confronting him. This man's convinced he's a good man. He's not as bad as those other people. 
See, you're not as bad as that person you work with. You'd never be like they are. You're not as bad as your neighbor. You're not as bad as your ex. You would never do what your ex did to you. You see, this man is convinced he's good. So Jesus says, I want you to know, there is still one thing you haven't done. There's still one thing you haven't done. In other words, words, I'm going to show you an illustration of your problem. Because folks, it's more than one thing. But the one thing Jesus uses illustrates the man's problem. Jesus said, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Now please, somebody hears Him saying, sell all your possessions. Jesus is saying, help others. You see, many people want a relationship with God, but they can't continue helping others. They, they do what makes them feel good. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I did this. I did this. I did that. I did, I'm a good person. I help people. Jesus says, I want you to help people out of sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Just take all that wealth you have and just sell everything you got. And help others. Sacrificially. Sacrificially. Don't you get mad at the pastor when he confronts you where you need to sacrifice? And then in your arrogance, you brag on your position? And you're not going to let some old preacher change your mind. Jesus is confronting this man. He says, he says give your money to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. And then you come follow me. In other words, God will give you that relationship with Him. Now, keep following me. That's what Jesus tells him. In other words, just live and love like me. Now folks, you see, the man worshipped his goodness. The first commandment, Jesus or God said, have no other God before me. The second commandment, He says, and don't create any idols as your God. And this man has done that. This man has become the God of his life because he has decided he's good based upon he doesn't have any great compulsive behaviors. He's not a bad person. He doesn't need to go to those group meetings. He's okay. And yet, something missing. He just can't get a hold of that relationship with God. And what Jesus does is He confronts His goodness through those commandments He quoted. And He confronts that man's achievements, his arrogance by saying, I'm going to tell you, let me just give you one example. Get rid of everything and sacrifice to serve others. You see, Jesus is trying to show this man, you're caught up in idolatry. You're caught up in your God and you've created all these idols. And these idols, listen, are what you worship. And folks, we always know what we worship because worship takes our time and our energy and our resources. It always does. That's why you can't grow in relationship with Jesus who's God without giving your time. That's why you don't grow in your relationship with Jesus who's God without giving your energies. That's why you don't grow in relationship with Jesus without giving your resources. And see, this man's caught up in idol worship and his idol is his own goodness. It's himself and what he can do on his own ability. Look at the next blank in your worship handout. Jesus is not talking about behavior modification for this man. Jesus is talking about worship alteration. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, listen, you've got to change your behavior. He's saying you've got to decide who you're going to worship. And, and the money is just an illustration because the guy worships himself in his own goodness. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, sacrificially serve others and follow me. And the relationship with God's going to be there. The treasures in heaven are going to be there. Who do you worship? This guy has a worship problem. And so do you and I. Whenever I get angry at Laura, it's a worship problem. It's whether I'm going to worship God or I'm going to worship myself. Whenever somebody hurts you 
and you try to be vengeful. You've got a worship problem. It's whether your way or God's way. Now listen, I'm not saying people can go out and do wrong things. People need to be held accountable. Scripture teaches that. But you see, we got a worship problem. This man has a worship problem. And Jesus is trying to bring some, some altering in his understanding. Because this man says, I know this in all of my life. And I'm a good guy. In all of my life. And people realize I'm not a bad guy. In all of my life, I'm able to be self-sufficient and meet my needs. But one thing I can't get a hold of, that's an ongoing relationship with God. And Jesus is trying to get him to recognize he's put his idol, which involves idols, above God. This is a good man who worships the wrong thing. And Jesus is trying to get him to see that. And look, look, look at verse 23. But when the man heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very rich. Because you see, if he, if he gets rid of this idol, he loses his identity. He's no longer the rich man. If he gets rid of this idol, he loses his security that wealth brings. And he just won't realize God is telling him, I will give you more security and a better identity. And folks, I, you're going you're gonna to argue with me on this. I'm just telling you, look around. Look at your children you wish would get their life together. Look at your mate you wish would get their life together. And look at yourself. When God confronts us regarding our worship of the wrong thing, we lose our identity and our security because that's what makes me feel good. I wish Laura was here because she usually sits over here, my wife. Because this week we had a little disagreement and, and I was angry toward her and I said probably two, three hurtful things to her. Because God is good about making me realize, don't be so bad. And I think about 15 minutes later, because I wasn't having any conversation with her, I was rah, 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 to myself. I mean, I was mad at myself. Why do you do this? Mike and God's trying to get me to repent, but you know, I'm not going to repent. Because at that point, I'm God. And so Laura comes to me and she says in a very kind way some, something that makes a lot of sense. And I say, why would you say that? She says, I'm saying that in retaliation to what you said. I said, no, she said, I'm saying that because you need to hear that. And I say, why would you retaliate like that? She says, because you need to hear it. Folks, it's within a half hour. I'm on my hands and knees and I'm scrubbing her floors for her. I'm doing repentance. She didn't ask me. But God so convicted me that I was in the wrong worship service. And I can only tell you about my life. Somebody said, oh, you're always going to be a hero. No, God's the hero, not me. That guy said on that video, you want to know how to be a man? Look at Jesus. And this guy's saying, I've got everything, man. I am a good man. I'm not like those people that have to go to group. I, I, I've got it all together. I don't, I don't break the laws of God. But I can't get a relationship with God. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what it is. You've got to change your worship. It's your self and your goodness that keeps you from totally giving in to what God wants and letting Him be your God. You see, we all got to look at those things that give us identity. If it's success and money, look, it's your identity and it's your security because you can go do what you want, when you want to do it, and where you want to do it. If your idol is family and children, listen, you will prioritize those before God every time almost. And you'll justify it by saying, well, I'm not going to be legalistic. And yet your children see there's no sacrifice. 
They don't understand altering of schedules to not put God on the sideline. And you keep saying, I'm not being legalistic. And you've heard me talk about don't be legalistic in some things. If your idol is food and substance, I'm going to tell you, when difficulty comes, you're at the food table. You're at the refrigerator. You're going for the substance because you see you got difficulty in your life and that's your idol. If your idol is anger and pride, then what you do, you just feel like in some situations you've got to take control because you can't trust God. You see, our idols, our idols cause us to have relationship problems. Not only with other people, but with that which we want most. Because you see, you were created to be an image bearer of God. And it creates a relationship problem with God and you just can't get a hold of Him. You've tried it. Some of you have tried one church after another. Listen, plant your anchor. Don't miss on a regular basis. And look at the Word with us. And let God be God of your life. Jesus is showing this man he's got a worship problem. When he thinks he's not bad, but he knows he can't get a hold of the relationship with God, Jesus is saying it's all because of the idols in your life. Now look at 24. Look what Jesus said. When Jesus saw this, He said... In other words, when He saw this man walk away sad... See, because the man's idol was his identity and his security. In this case, it's richness. Some people only preach about finances on this. This is much greater. This is this guy's goodness. Because that's what happens to some people. I don't need church because I'm good. I don't need Jesus because I'm good. I'm not as bad as some of those people who go to church. You know those hypocrites, what they do? And Jesus sees this guy walking away. When Jesus saw this, He said, see the disciples are around Him, there's people around Him, He says, how hard, look, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is giving the conclusion of idol worship, though He used wealth with this man, it's whatever your idol is, how hard it is for a person who is caught up in idol worship to enter the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, Jesus is sort of being sort of funny here. And yet He's being dead serious. He's saying it's impossible because He says in verse 25, in fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now folks, in the Greek, that word needle is the word for a sewing needle. And I know some of you, you've been to church and somebody told you it was that narrow gate in, in, when they closed the, the gates to Jerusalem and they had a narrow place you could go through, but you had to take the pack off of your camel and your camel could just barely squeeze through there. And folks, I want to tell you, there's no historical record of such a thing in the gates of Jerusalem. It came about ten centuries later into Christian teaching. Jesus is saying, if you worship idols, it is impossible to enter God's kingdom. That's the danger. A lot of us are saying, mm, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. But we worship our things. And we are God. And Jesus says, it's impossible because you can't put a camel, you can't put a camel through an eye of a sewing needle. I don't care what you heard some other preacher say. You can't do that. Now look what they reply. They knew what he was saying. They're there. That's why it's always important. They say, verse 26, wow. Because they know a camel can't go through and I have a sewing needle. So they say, those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? Because you see, they realize idols are always Confronting us. Who in the world can be saved? And I want to tell you, nobody. Nobody can be saved by what they do. That's what this passage is all about. Look, he replied, verse 27, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Jesus is saying, when people try to do it to get a relationship with God, it don't work. 
Because the only way you can have a relationship with God is that God makes it possible. You see, it's not what I do that makes me the man of God. It's all that Jesus has done. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We have taught in our churches. It's all we do. And listen, I memorize Scripture. I read the Bible. I pray. I spent 40 minutes the other morning praying for my, my grandchildren and the people, the kids they're going to marry, and there was parents of those kids. So see, I'm impressing you. I pray, but none of that makes me a man of God. Jesus makes me a man of God. That's why you hear all the time, you need to live and love like Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to these people. It's impossible for people but it's possible for God. 28, Peter said, <clears throat> you always got some human who wants to say, okay, that's me. Peter says, well, gee, Lord, we left our homes to follow you. In other words, we paid a high price, okay? We've given very much. 29, Jesus says, yes. Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone... Now, look what he says. <clears throat> he doesn't deal with Peter's arrogance. He says, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children... Now, he doesn't even talk about wealth, does he? He's talking about that which makes you secure because you've got a roof over your head. He's talking about that which makes you secure because they lay beside you in the bed. He's talking about that which makes you secure because they give you purpose in life, your, your family, you see? So what does he say? He says, put in shorter hours at job? No. He says, here he says, sell your wealth? No. He says, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom. And that's the key underline for the sake of the kingdom. That's what this is all about. You see, because when it's for the sake of God's kingdom, it's no longer my kingdom. It's not about me. When it's for the sake of the kingdom, it has nothing to do with anything I achieve. When it's for the sake of the kingdom, it's what God would want. And that's what He says. For the sake of the kingdom. Why do you work in preschool? Why do you help with kids rock? Why do you help clean up and prepare this environment and clean it up? Why did, why did you work on the building? Why do you do what you do? Do you do out of obligation? Do you say to yourself, well, it's what all Christians ought to do. Do you do it out of, listen, somebody getting on you, somebody makes you do it? You're made to be upset with you? So you do it out of submission? Your mom or dad would be mad at you? The pastor makes you feel guilty? Do you do it out of submission? Do you do it to get, you know, if I help in preschool, God will have favor with me and people will like me. If, if I help clean up and prepare, I'll be known as a good person. And I could go through that litany of things you could do. Do you do it to get? Why do you do what you do in regards to God? And for the sake of the kingdom. The only answer can be, because I love God. And I love God because He first loved me. That's God worship. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Look what He says in 30. He says, anyone who does it for the sake of the kingdom, He says, will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to understand when God sees it's for His kingdom and not your kingdom, when it's for the sake of His kingdom and not the sake of your world, I'm a good Christian person. He says, God will reward you in this life and He will reward you in the next life. That's what Jesus says. That's what that man wanted. That man wanted the relationship with God. And he was such a great example of a good person. But he couldn't get it. Look at the last blank in your message map. Please fill that in or look at that. Because I don't want somebody going saying, I'm saying, sell everything you got. Jesus does not ask his followers to sell everything they have. <clears throat> Although, understand, this may be the will for some. Okay? Because he's got a spatial thing he wants you to do. Okay? He does ask us all to get rid of anything that has become more important in life than him. There's no way I'm selling that. And yet you know 
and you use it even to hurt your family, to take them away from God. No way I'm selling that. No way I'm getting rid of that. No way I'm doing away with that night. Jesus says, whatever you do for the sake of the kingdom, that's what brings your relationship with God. Idols can be very dangerous. You see the last bold print? Idols can be dangerous to us developing our spiritual life. You see, you don't become a bad person. It's just you're where you were five months ago. You're where you were five years ago. You're where you were ten years ago. You're where you were for some people. They go to church for 40 years and they're still bitter and they still hold on to ill feelings and they still gossip and they never change. And I'm not saying they're not a Christian. But you see, idols, idols will stop your spiritual development. If you don't crush your idols, that fellow said on the screen, your idols will crush you. If you don't crush your idols, your idols will crush you when it comes to spiritual life. Look at the last verse again. This is what we looked at verse 23. I want to remind you of this. This is, what, this is the illustration of this man. This man, when he heard what Jesus said, he became sad. For his idol was very important to him. I hope. I hope you've heard what I said and that you realize if you've got an idol problem, that you don't make the idol any longer more important than God. Do we have any questions? Got one? I don't understand why in Luke 18, 18 and 19, Jesus says only God is good when the leader called Jesus good. Isn't He and God the same? I answered that. Yeah. Jesus is good because He's God. Okay? So you're right. Whoever wrote that, you're right. Okay? But the leader doesn't understand Jesus is God. Some of us still have trouble. Go to the Connect Group meeting tonight because we're going to talk about Jesus is God. Okay? I'm not going to answer any more past 12. Let's just bow together. Father, thank You for this time and thank You for confronting us and help us, God, sometimes like little children to receive Your godly correction. We don't like it. And like the sheep who has the shepherd's crook put around his neck, we want to pull away. But Father, thank You that Your Spirit is real and may Your Spirit continue to speak to us today and this week about our relationship with You and our worship of You above all else. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.